Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster and it's certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. A cracking episode for you today. It's our monthly focus group uh, where we team up with uh, Kex CNC to bring you the real views of swing voters. No James Johnson this month, though, because we've got legendary US pollster Frank Luntz in the chair. And if, no matter how bad you think British politics is, he was quite pleasantly surprised at how nice people are when they're discussing politics in the UK, at least compared to America. So that's coming up in our big thing uh, later in the episode. But first, as ever, we kick off with our economist panel. No Libby Purpose this week. She's off servicing a yacht or something. So we've got Rachel Sylvester and Martha Gill. Well, I, I suppose we need to talk about unlocking. I, are either of you planning to go to a nightclub or get married? Rachel? <laughs> no, definitely not. Well, I'm already married and I have no plans to go to any nightclub. But I would quite like to see some more friends. And also, I quite like to visit family. We've got family in America and I know that's a whole other section of <laughs> unlocking, but I would quite like that. What about you, Martha? Are you, are you concerned about the idea of uh, unlocking being delayed beyond next week? Well, I haven't been to a nightclub for about five years, but all throughout lockdown, I've been telling people how much I would love to go to a nightclub. Uh, but I suspect <laughs> oh, exactly what would actually same. happen <laughs> is I'd probably sneak off home at around 11 anyway. So it's it's postponed my shame for another four weeks. Uh, hasn't affected me too much. But then I'm not a small business owner or, you know, one of the main people it will affect, I guess. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? If you are a pub or a restaurant and you're working on reduced capacity at the moment right now, you had been counted down to next week when you can pack people in and, and maybe start to make a bit of profit for possibly the first time in 12 months. Well, exactly. And also theatres. I, I thought it was very interesting. Andrew Lloyd Webber really going to take this on. If he really stands by that, that's quite a high profile showdown looming, isn't it? 
Yeah, and I suppose it's one thing. Was he says he wants? He, he, in fact, he said last week he was going to, happy to be arrested uh, on June twenty yeah. first. Uh, but um, presumably that does rely on people turning up. Um, uh, and I do, if you look at all the polls, although on the one, you know, the, some of the pages today in the Daily Mail in particular is very cross about June the 21st being delayed and some Tory MPs. If you look at all the polls, people, the public are remarkably relaxed about this, Martha, in a way that 12 months ago we were being told, you know, behavioural scientists saying that Brits certainly wouldn't put up with this. We were amazingly compliant. Well, it's true. I think we've been gradually worn down once this, this is now established a new normal and we, we're kind of a bit scared of what once normal has been established. It takes quite a lot of psychological shift to get into the old normal, if you see what I mean. And I suppose, I mean, people people can see what's happening. Um, I mean, you know, Boris Johnson was quite clear when he set out this roadmap in the first place, it'd be driven by the data, not dates. Now the data does show uh, that perhaps this is the right call. You know, we're in the grip of a third wave. Cases are rising 50% in a week. In some parts of the country, they're doubling every four and a half days. I mean, you can see that this, this, this is the right thing to do. And I think people are quite sensible. And there doesn't seem to be any political risk in this uh, for Boris Johnson, Rachel. The, um actually the sort of slow instead where, where all the risk was was last year when he was reluctant to do things and then you know got into trouble and uh, it's the only time these sort of poll ratings have really gone down in the past 18 months was was last autumn when it looked like he wasn't taking tougher decisions no that's absolutely right it's fascinating the time the things that have gone wrong for him is when he's not locked down enough um and actually if anything we're in the trouble we are now because of the failure to stop uh, people coming in from India in large numbers. So that's, in a way, I think he's got nothing to lose politically by extending this, uh, these restrictions. Uh, and also, he's still reaping the benefits massively of the vaccine rollout, which has been successful. And the one thing I do really feel strongly about, actually, that I wish they would deal with is the um, school children. So my, you know, my son's been off self-isolating for another 10 days last week and you do just feel they've got to get the vaccines into schools now and that has got to be the priority before september is to make sure we just even if there's another wave that schools aren't shut again and children aren't it's not even if the schools are it's not just keeping the schools open but making sure that children aren't forced to self-isolate repeatedly which so many of them are having to do uh, somebody's just uh lindsay's just got in touch saying there's proof positive that boris johnson doesn't like musical theater would be opening up on the 21st if andrew lord Webber hadn't promised to get himself bagged up uh, suggesting <laughs> boris is only doing this to punish uh andrew lord Webber. um tom uh tweets in saying one element of unlocking uh, that you've not mentioned the presumed extension of the government advice to work from home as much as you can a lot of people are getting frustrated by the isolation that this creates and they want to get back into the office and or workplace is that something that you're itching to do martha to get back into an office uh, I quite like living, getting. I quite like going into the office. Yeah, I I, I miss the con- companionship. I mean, people are very split on this, aren't they? It depends on your age, on your situ, on your home situation, on how much you like other people, on how annoyed you get by your desk companions chewing or cooking <laughs> at lunches or eating them at their desks. Uh, I quite like other people don't. I think it certainly would be a bad thing if 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 this continued too long for you know the, the future of the centre of London um, and, and and other big cities. Um, yeah, I I think uh, that's that's an element of it which which definitely uh, should end in after these four weeks. I mean, everything points towards the fact that after these four weeks, this this delay will be sufficient. Like all the over fifties will 
get their second vaccines by then have time to get immunity so i don't think we should see this as a kind of forever rolling forward the deadline it, it looks like the data will support a reopening in four weeks time uh so we shouldn't get too catastrophic about it it's amazing how we've all, we have all become experts in sort of being able to read the graphs and exponential growth <laughs> and all of that. Now, now it makes total sense what Boris Johnson is doing. What <laughs> Boris Johnson is doing. Um, I wonder. It's been interesting, Rachel. That sort of a few months ago, we were talking about nobody was ever going back to the office ever again. Everyone was quite happy working from home. It was all uh, all great. And actually, we've already seen some businesses starting to try to coax people back into the office by offering you know, beer and, you know, goodies and that sort of thing. And actually, I do wonder if some businesses who were very hasty and said, right, we're going all online now, you can work from home forever, uh, we're, you know, we're entirely virtual, they might suddenly find that people don't want to work for them anymore, that actually the, the process of going in and meeting colleagues and maybe going for a drink after work and all that sort of thing, that is part of working life. And if you're literally only doing the work bit, it's not a huge amount of fun. Yes, exactly. I think it's fascinating. What I think you may end up with is more of a balance. So people going into the office sometimes, but not that kind of daily grind. And that's what I quite like is a sort of mixture where you do see your colleagues from time to time, but you're not always, it's not the sort of daily jumping on the tube in the crushed rush hour um, going into the office. So I think we're going to end up with a sort of more mixed um, economy perhaps with people working from home some of the time and then going in for meetings or to meet their colleagues or for lunches uh, and and sort of much more choice and power about it mm. yeah no, I, th- well, I think that's and I suppose that's the thing isn't it is it the, the jump from it's not five days in the office or no days in the office two or three four days in the office maybe a bit of flexibility if you've got a big project to do that seems exactly uh, that seems yeah. uh, slightly fairer. Uh, now Martha I want to talk about your context you've you're, you've written the column in the Times today in, in place of uh, Libby it was really interesting it's basically about how uh, the dramatization of politics comes around quicker so <laughs> quicker and quicker these days to the point that you know the it's almost in sort of real time yeah 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 I mean almost before you've seen the news Benedict Cumberbatch is playing one of the one of one of the main characters I mean so so next year we've got a drama TV drama about Boris and Carrie Simmons during the first wave of the pandemic called This Septodile starring starring Kenneth Branagh which which feels very strange to be watching uh something when the when the main characters are still on stage Boris and Carrie uh, will still be there the pandemic will probably still be grinding on in some form um, and I just wonder what this is doing to us. I mean, I'm obviously there's no solution to this without um, doing something very totalitarian and stopping filmmakers making what they want, <laughs> stopping people being what they want. But but that doesn't mean there isn't a problem because um, I think uh, there's quite a lot of evidence it does influence us when we see politicians. In films, fictionalised, there, there are various studies which shows that, that uh, it primes you to see them in a more positive or negative light. And I mean, if, if you look at, um, so Brexit, the uncivil war, if you remember, which was in 2019, was about, about the events of, of Brexit and how that happened. And some of the people involved in it, intimately involved in real life, watched the drama, which was at least partly fictional and said, oh, I didn't realise this happened. And uh, oh, you can really see how much of a personal vendetta Dominic Cummings had against the establishment uh, based on fictional scenes. So uh, there's a sort of slightly insidious way drama affects us. And I think, I think there is a problem in, in dramatising something almost instantly that you've seen on these when this is something you're going to be later voting on. 
uh, when these are people that you will, yeah, you will vote into power or not. And I suppose also as well, because it's such a live thing. So, so I remember like James Graham's, some, you know, his historical political plays, particularly This House, was terrific yeah. in the fact that nobody involved in that was still on the, on the stage. You know, he could do mm. meticulous research, speak to them all, and they've not got any skin in the game anymore, apart from, you know, maybe a bit of personal pride. But you probably can get at something closer to truth Dan, if you interviewed Dominic Cummings right now, talk us through the meetings last year. You're going to get a very different um, picture to, say, Boris Johnson or Matt Hancock's uh, recollection because it's a live thing. There's sort of, um, you know, who's the up, who's down. Committee, the select exactly. committee drama is the actual real thing, isn't it? It is, yeah. So, so it does mm. sort of warp things. What do you think, uh, Rachel? Is there, should, what should be the sort of statute of limitations maybe before we have... <laughs> um, there should be a period of time set down in law before you're allowed to dramatise it. I thought uh, Martha's piece was fascinating, actually. And, of course, the makers of The Crown have decided not to go up to recent events because, uh, I I suppose, because of perhaps public respect for the royal family, they don't want them to see dramatised absolutely live, which is quite perhaps shows the sort of less respect that the public have for politicians. But also, especially when you've got politicians themselves are framing the narrative so, uh, you know, actively. So whether it's Boris Johnson on all those beach photo shoots... Um, you know, or Keir Starmer with his wallpaper or whatever. They're trying to shape a narrative and a myth and a story around politics themselves the whole time, which perhaps leaves less room for drama. And I wonder, so I have less of a democratic issue, but I wonder whether it makes for less good drama. I, I talked to Kwame Kwema, the um, artistic director of The Young Vic, a few months ago and um, asked him whether he thought there'd be lots of sort of COVID-19 plays coming up. And he said he hoped not because he <laughs> said, um, I'm just looking up the quote, he said, um, trauma is best served at a distance, like revenge. And that sense of actually the best dramas, you need a bit of perspective, like those brilliant um, James Graham historical dramas. There's a sense of you can actually get a more accurate picture if you have a bit of distance from them. Indeed, and 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 um, uh, something I, I said in the piece was that um, a draw, you know, commissions commissioners naturally want to hit a zeitgeist, which basically, in plain terms, means feeding the audience their own ideas back to them. <laughs> and we all have an idea of who the main protagonists are in politics in the moment and what stories they're feeding to the media, or what stories the media has about them. And so, really, a, a, a film which has a note of truth in it. Um, would probably just repeat those ideas back to us, which which is rather boring, as you say, and makes for quite poor drama. Yeah, I think nobody really wants a COVID book, film, novel, <laughs> play, um, and all you know. And I might, yeah, even uh, I'm not sure what's really happening with the sort of the, the um, uh, Edinburgh Fringe, but you know, stand-up shows about my year at home making sourdough nobody wants that nobody wants you know because you know it is a collective experience that we've all been through we just talk about some other stuff yeah um i think that's that's definitely (laughs) i definitely definitely agree with that and it but i mean if they're not going to go ahead with uh the crown going all the way up to date it doesn't mean megan won't be able to play megan which will be a real shame um uh (laughs) boris johnson's just actually just in the last few minutes arriving in uh brussels has been talking about china 
Uh, and um, he said, I think gigan- uh, China is a gigantic fact in our lives, a new strategic consideration for NATO, which has spent all uh, so much of the, its time in the last 70 years thinking about the Soviet Union, the various security threats posed afterwards. But he says, when it comes to China, I don't think anybody around the table today wants to descend into a new Cold War. They see challenges. They see things we have to manage together. They also see opportunities. I just wonder where, where you think um, the EU, uh, EU leaders have blocked efforts to name and shame Beijing for using slave labour in Xinjiang. It's been reported on the Times today. There's lots of tensions, isn't there, between countries who want to take quite a hard line on China and others who see lots of basically money and investment and you know economic opportunities in China. Where, where do you think the balance should lie for Britain, Rachel? Well, there's also big divides within the Tory party, aren't there? And I think Boris Johnson is really trying to tread that fine line. Um, and I think probably he is a bit too craven at the moment. And the, some of the Tory MPs like Tom Tuckendart, Ian Duncan Smith, who are really worried about the rise of China and the democratic implications of that, do have a point. And the government did everything it could to block their changes to the law on Xinjiang and or you know and human rights um and i think there is a case if you know for um tougher action but i thought it was interesting that the fact that um it wasn't possible for the the uh, g7 leaders to agree a communique shows how wide those splits are but you know once you do have a kind of multilateralism back which it was now with trump gone and biden on the stage there's more room for negotiation you're going to have to have some compromises around that kind of thing what do you think martha yeah, well, I, I mean, I can see the, the the split really was between, you know, I, can you be tough with China on human rights and trade one day and then expect them to cooperate on climate change <laughs> the next? And that's the that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, uh, the G7 uh, was split along those lines. We were in the in the sort of tougher camp, along which was led by Biden. Um, but I think the, in the end, uh, the the cooperative um, camp seems to have won. Um, I mean, I don't know what the solution is. <laughs> I guess, I guess, as, as as Rachel says, it's it's got to be a balance. Um, uh, but, but yes, I suppose I suppose um, that we could be tougher. Most best with Martha Gill. Then you can read uh, Martha's column right now online at thetimes.co.uk. Just get yourself a Times subscription. Thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's our monthly focus group. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for our monthly focus group in association with Kex CNC. Let's dip in now to our regular monthly focus group here on Times Radio in association with the global communications firm Kex CNC. Normally, we would speak to James Johnson, the former number 10 pollster who runs these focus groups for us. But today, and it was James's decision, we haven't <laughs> elbowed him out of the way, uh, we've got a very special guest host. Frank Lunst is a legendary US pollster who's worked for the Republicans and is a political strategist in the US. And Frank joins me now. Hi, Frank. How are you? But, uh, I feel You now made me feel really guilty. for next week. No. It's very kind to let me do this. No, it is good. And what's been really fascinating is we've done a few, James does a monthly for us, and we've done a few uh, focus groups with different uh, people. He's seen the different styles about how uh, whoever's chairing the, the panel sort of picks through them and um, uh, tries to draw out the best of the panellists. One of the things that uh, really uh, struck me is I sort of like to start at the end, if you like, before we get sort of stuck into the focus group itself, I was really struck by... Uh, something you said at the very end about your experience of doing this poll, uh, this focus group for us, uh, compared to your experience of when you do it in the uh, US. Let's take a listen. I'm so impressed by this conversation. Nobody was rude. Nobody was mean. It was a civil discussion. Some of you acknowledged you didn't know an answer, and I appreciate that candor. We can't do this in America anymore. We could not have this debate. Several of you feel very strongly about your point of view, and you were kind to each other and respectful to each other. Why are you managing to succeed when the United States of America is tearing itself apart? Why are you so able to have such a high-level, reasonable dialogue when the U.S. cannot do anything without without uh, rudeness and meanness and ugliness. I'm so impressed with this conversation and it makes me so depressed about America. Well, here we are, Franklin. So that, it turns out everyone was was, was quite not... Just describe for us the experience of doing a focus group in America and how that compared to your experience with our panel. It takes minutes. <laughs> it, it, it takes seconds before... Someone is completely outraged and insults the individual who spoke before them or someone just levels an attack. It is it is upsetting, um, alarming now. And it's one of the reasons why I'm here in the UK. It's because I don't want to see Britain become this way. I don't want to see you guys travel down the path of wokeism, of populism, uh, of extremism. And in fact, as I speak to you, I'm going to take my own notes uh, because uh, wokeism, populism, extremism. They, uh, just for your <laughs> listeners right now, this is exactly how I do it. I listen to words of, of others. I listen to things that I even c- conclude, and then I test them out, uh, sometimes through a focus group, sometimes through quantitative rural poll, 1,000, 1,500, maybe 2,000 people, and we'll ask them the impact of what that phrase has on them. I'm always listening. And I'm always trying to learn. And it's so much easier to listen to the people of the UK because they're not shouting. They may be angry. They may be nervous. They may be anxious about the future, but they're not tearing each other apart. And I appreciate the respect and dignity that they hold to each other, even when they strongly disagree. 
Let's, um, uh, I sort of always get James Johnson to do this for us, the sort of the legal bit at the top. Uh, explain the difference between a focus group and an opinion poll, uh, because uh, people always get into it. So why are you listening to these six people? Uh, somebody's already texted in. He's talking to Times readers. They're not Times readers. They are selected by a market research company. Uh, we have no role at all in selecting. So from your point of view... Uh, an opinion poll with a representative sample, which would give you some idea of what the entire country uh, thinks, is one thing. Why? Why is there value in a focus group? Why do you? Uh, why did you persist with them in America up until the point where they were just horrible? And why is there value to doing them in the UK? Well, there were eight people in the session. Whenever there's a conflict, I always trust trust the poll because the surveys of fifteen hundred people. If you do it right, you'd have a margin of error of two two and a half percent. British polling has been notoriously inaccurate in, in recent times because people have not wanted, and the same thing in the US, Americans went through this in 2020, where there were some polls that had Donald Trump losing by 10, 15 points, and he, he still lost, but did not lose by the numbers that the polls had it. The focus groups explain why. That's why they're valuable, to listen to what the respondents say and why they say it. You can't get that in a public, in a published uh, public opinion poll. It just, it tells you how many people feel the way that they do. It tells you how big a size of the population it is. It tells you whether you've got a majority or major, minority point of view, but they don't explain nearly as well as a focus group, how people feel the way that they do. And to those people who are listening now, please stay on. Because you're gonna, this will explain to you why people feel the way that they do. And I know that, and I hear this all the time. Well, no one I know likes uh, Boris, or everyone I know, everyone I know likes Boris, or everyone I know voted Remain, or no one I know voted Remain. It, it, and it, the reason why you do a poll is to quantify it. The reason why you do a focus group is to explain it. Do you know what? I've had exactly that. Somebody tweeted in this morning, don't believe the polls. I don't know one person who either agrees with it or abide by it, talking about um, uh, lockdown. So that, that completely confirms your your point. And what do you think has been the drive, before we actually get stuck into the, the actual detail of the focus groups, you talked about how difficult it would become in America to do this. Is that because the national uh, political discourse was 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 basically turned toxic by Donald Trump. You know, if the person at the very top is going around saying appalling things about his rivals, that that all trickles down. And actually, one thing that we've, I think we've sort of managed to hang on to in the UK is that Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, they might, you know, uh, knock each other about at PMQs and that sort of thing. It's essentially still a reasonably polite discourse between those at the top of our of our politics. Well, you've got PMQs, which is absolute, is war as we know it. It's, it's the best, it really is the best television for those people like me who are geeks and, and love politics. And your question time is the best show, best news program on English speaking television or television or radio. It is just awesome because average everyday people get a chance to be heard, get a chance to challenge their elected officials. And you have a host who's responsible for making sure that they get the answers from the politicians, they don't let the politicians slide. But I do believe that the British shows, uh, you've got, um, oh, um, trying to remember the name now. Uh, I'll come up with it. It's a really, really tough, 
interview and it's it's not a big deal here but it to me it's the toughest interview of english speaking oh damn it andrew and, we talking about and, andrew Marr on a sunday morning no it's actually he can be tough but this show even the name of the show is aggressive hard talk and, Hard talk. That's yes, it. I know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So sort of one on one, yeah. one on one interview uh, thing. But that's a. But I suppose the difference with that is it's a, it's a sit down, proper interview about issues. It's not just sort of mudslinging and seeing who could be the most uh, appalling to, to sort of get a uh, social media clip uh, going and that sort of thing. Let's get stuck into what the panel actually had to say, uh, Frank. We're going to start maybe fairly obviously because you're, you've come from America. You, you asked the group about what they thought of Joe Biden. Let's take a listen. Makes you feel a bit more relaxed about it. I feel a bit more safer. I don't feel like things are a bit out of control and done on a whim. I think there's going to be a lot more of a thought process in things. It's more stable. He's, he's, he seems more stable. There's less tweeting that every time you turn on news, Donald Trump has tweeted some other random rubbish and you just you don't get that. It just seems stable. Doesn't seem to be so much in the limelight since he's taken over. I guess if you was American, then yeah, you could understand. But being English, it's not something that you'd always want in your face. I don't think he's uh, he's Twitter orientated anyway. I mean, what is he? Seventy eight, eight year old. I mean, I don't know if I'd want someone that old in front in charge of my country. Um, I, I'd agree with what Peter just said. Actually, um, I think for his age, seems um a bit. Different, I'd say, when you look at general most leaders, he does seem old to be a leader. But I'd also say, with uh, totally agree with what everyone else seems to be saying, is that America seems from the outside a lot more stable. You know, everyone's saying we're not putting the news on it's, you know, Trump's threatening to blow up North Korea today or he's going to blow up someone else tomorrow. It's, it seems more stable. It's like, right, Trump's gone. Like, did it really sort of happen kind of thing? So, Frank, that's the the the, uh, the panel's view of Joe Biden, and just American politics has just seemed to be dialed down a bit. But his age did seem to come up quite a lot, didn't it? It came up a lot, but you know what? What he said is exactly what Americans say. So I'm not surprised. Uh, the group, once again, was not mean about him. They spoke about his age, but not in an insulting way, unlike uh, what you occasionally hear from the former president himself. Uh, Joe Biden is the oldest president ever. Let's let's emphasize that fact. But the and there's some concern about that. But uh, the G7 was an example of of global leaders working together, getting along, seeking some sort of compromise, and it's exactly what a majority of people on both sides of the Atlantic, what they want. They don't want this confrontation. They don't want every day being a brawl, being a fight. And they're tired of rudeness. Even in America, it's obvious in Britain, but even in America, the public finally said enough. (laughs) Stop being so, and by the way, it's enough in all caps with an exclamation point. Just stop being so rude, so mean, so vicious, so ugly. And if you follow the former president's tweets, he's continuing. But with every passing day, there are more and more people who are saying, I've had it. I may agree with him, but I don't agree with what he's saying. I don't agree with how he's saying it. It's probably more accurate. And I'm tired. I just, this is not who America is. This is not what we want America to be. So your British respondents reflected that perfectly. 
So that's the view of uh, Joe Biden. Obviously, now let's find out what they thought of uh, politics on this side of the Atlantic. Let's kick off with a proper, a proper old fashioned focus group question. This sum up Boris Johnson in one word. Bad hair. Clown. Buffoon. You've stolen all of my answers. Um, he's a fool, isn't he? <laughs> one of the lads. Yeah, one of the lads. Uh, I'd say, uh, yeah, one of the lads. Yeah, I think he's, I like him. He's likeable, approachable. Um, a Portugal and flamboyant. It's a hard one, to be honest, because I quite like him. I feel sorry for him. I mean, there will be people screaming at the radio now, Frank, at the suggestion that Boris Johnson is one of the lads. One of the lads. <laughs> I knew him. I knew him at Oxford. And so, and he was one of the lads. And I knew him when he was mayor of London and he was one of the lads. And I saw him when he was foreign minister. And this is a guy who doesn't generate that same kind of heat. And what's interesting to me, most interesting, is that he is redefining what it is to be a conservative. Uh, in 2021 in the UK, we saw an outstanding election result for him. Doesn't mean that everyone loves what he, everything he does, does not mean everyone loves everything he says, but Boris is able to get around some of the ugliness and the divisions that existed for previous uh, prime ministers on both sides of the aisle or on all three sides of the aisle, if you want to include the Greens and SNP Everybody. Boris is not treated like a traditional politician, and that is to his advantage. He needs to understand, if he were listening right now, that there is concern about the things that he wants to do and about what he truly believes. There are still doubts about him, but he's given the benefit of the doubt in a way that most politicians are not. And so I'm listening to this. And when I heard those responses to Boris, I assumed that the reactions of the conservatives were going to be quite negative, and they weren't. It's simply that they have doubts and concerns, but they're willing to uh, they're willing to stay with him for the next few months, next few years. They're willing to give him a chance to lead. And I suppose as well, there's a problem with if if Boris Johnson is treated as different to other politicians, and certainly he's not viewed as a standard conservative. It's quite difficult then for the opposition, who do need, you know, Labour Party need him to be a, an old-fashioned conservative, because then that gives them a point of difference and that sort of thing. Uh, let's take a listen to what they had to say about uh, Keir Starmer. Who's sorry? Keir Starmer, the leader. Never of the heard Labour. of them. The leader of the Labour Party. No idea. I like him. Sorry. No idea as well, Stacey. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. No idea on that one. I mean, that's not great, is it, Frank? That what over a year now into the job, there's someone on a focus group who doesn't even know who Kistarmer is. No, it says that he's not breaking through. And by the way, I don't, I'm going to ask you something on air, which no one ever does. But I might, but but I want to do this right. Are my responses too long? No, I'm not looking. at all. No, they're good. No, no, no. That's part of the. Um, that's why you're here, Frank. People don't want to hear from me. We want. We want your. Um, we want your take on it. I say, what? Let's hear from a bit more of the group with those who did know about Keir Starmer. Then I'll come back to you on uh, what Keir Starmer can try and do to make a bit more impact. I can't put my finger on it. Why he comes over a bit strange? There's something about him. I'm not sure, but I don't like him. I think he's very, very weak. I heard someone calling Captain Hindsight. Which ever since I heard that. He is Captain Hindsight, so it's really hard to understand how he would have done things different or what he's planning to do. 
before I actually watched, before uh, I really thinking about him, I was just indifferent. I've got no no judgment on him. But he was um, on Piers Morgan, you know, the um, one-to-one interview. And he came across quite humble and, and, and seemed like quite a nice chap. Yeah, I mean, I quite like him. I think I think he's all right. Um, do I think he would be quite strong in a leader's position? I think he would be more like a Theresa May if he was in Conservatives. I think he'd be a bit kind of nice about everything. But I think he's a nice guy. I like him. Um, to me, he comes across as a bit of a toff. It's probably the best word I could describe. You know, he's, he's more of a public school boy, which I'm surprised that the Labour Party have got somebody like him leading in comparison to people like Jeremy Corbyn, they like chalk and cheese. Now, whether that's because it's um, we don't want any more Jeremy Corbyn because of all the trouble he got the uh, the Labour Party in. Uh, Franklin, the thing that really leaps out to me is this group describing Boris Johnson as one of the lads and Keir Starmer as a bit of a toff. Labour strategists must be pulling their hair out at the prospect of, uh, of that being the, the public's view. Except that that's the danger of a focus group, is that you chose the two comments that I thought were least representative <laughs> of the session. That's why you're here. <laughs> and actually, I thought Captain Hindsight is really powerful. Let me explain it to the listeners. If there's something that you hear that stands out to you, that grabs your attention and starts to redefine everything that an individual says, it's, no, go back to Captain Hindsight. <laughs> that's the one that's really powerful because to that voter, it completely redefined everything that the labor leader has said since since she heard him. And that's the purpose of messaging in politics is to try to find those words, those phrases that stick with people, that are credible with people and redefine how they think and eventually how they vote. So that's the one I'm gonna be paying attention to. Notice that neither candidate did particularly well. They were not particularly positive towards Boris not positive towards the labor leader, except for those who saw that interview. And it tells me, as I'm listening to this, that you're you're basically going to try to be the best of the worst, that you're going to need to accept that a lot of people are going to dislike you. You just have to make sure that they dislike the other person even more than what they dislike you. If you were advising uh, Keir Starmer, and, or if you picked up the phone to you, you, you've been in the UK for a few weeks now, you've cut out quite a few of these uh, focus groups. What could he be doing differently? Is it a problem that uh, more than a year into the job, people still haven't really got a handle on him? It's a problem because you've already had a, a national election, and, and not a general election, but you've already had voters coming to the polls to indicate what they think about on the local level. And with with Tories winning in traditionally labeled areas in the north and only losing a small number of seats in the south, Labor's got to be very concerned. Now, you never do well in that first election. It takes time. But almost always in the second election or the third election, after you've had a a general election, voters want to express their opposition. They vote for the opposition parties, and that did not happen here. If I'm the Labor leader, I'm giving three pieces of advice. Number one is you've got to find a way to link the wokeism that affects people in the urban areas with the traditional populism that labor has done so well in the north and with people who don't like how much the conservatives are spending the so-called deficit hawks because you have to have a majority and there is not a majority for what labor supports right now so they're gonna have to figure out how to tie people together number two is that 
there has to be a reason why people will say, I don't, I want to, I want to change and I want to change from a party that has put forward in the past, uh, Tony Benn and Michael Foote and Jeremy Corbyn and people that are just outside the mainstream, that you're going to have to win back people who voted labor at the time of Tony Blair. And probably this is the strongest piece of recommendation. If you look at British elections, and I get agitated over this because I've talked to labor people about it because this work that I'm doing is nonpartisan. Go to each general election, lost, 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 lost. Blair, 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 lost, 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 lost. Are you not hearing something from this? So I'm sorry for those of you, and now I'm being provocative, but I want to be, because I want you to tell me the comments of your listeners. Every time Labor's put up someone from the left, they have lost the election. Every time they put up someone who's dead center, they have won. Are you not hearing this, Labor? Do you not understand this? We'll see. Yes, yeah, so I suppose that's the big debate, isn't it? And the, the, particularly the Labour Party became so sort of turned in on itself under Jeremy Corbyn and the sort of ideological purity of the left. And Corbyn came up in a bit and there's some of those um, topics that some of those responses there too, that, that it, it was all about what was going on inside the party rather than looking out and, you know, ideological purity over necessarily... Um, uh, winning votes. One thing that has come up time and again when we've been doing these focus groups for the like past 12 months is that one, one man remains uh, hugely popular, although it's slightly less enthusiastic than usual. Let's take a listen to what the panel had to say about Rishi Sunak. Oh, God's a tough one. Um, he's all right. No real feelings either way for him, to be honest. Uh, yeah, same as Vicky. I think he's all right. I think he's, he's shown himself in the public eye when he's been doing at the beginning of the BEL to help out and worked in Wagamama's and you know, he's, he's done what he can do with the numbers. And I think he's just one of those names that pops up. I don't think you really see him a lot. I, I don't know. As a person, nothing that's striking out. But, like, to, to do what he's done and obviously juggle the figures, I'd imagine he's got a very high-level intelligence, whether I don't know if that's a, in terms of opinion. But I also like the fact they helped me out because I made the most of that as well. That <laughs> he's committed because... He's he's worked day and night since it started to make it work. I like Rishi Sunak. Um, obviously, because obviously I've, I've been benefited from the uh, self-assessment and support grant. I think he's done a good job, and I think it's like Zoe said, you don't really hear much negative about him. He's kind of like gets some of what he's doing. You know, he's done a good job on the debt, etc. And I think think people walk to him. So it's still really uh, uh, positive, as we said, Frank Luntz, although there is this direct link between uh, positivity and whether or not Rishi Sunak has been giving you money in the past 12 months. And that's the line that I remember. So good for you. Uh, when he has <laughs> I'm, I'm getting better at this. When he has to, uh, yeah, I, I'm trying to get as good as you. My, <laughs> you're my bar. And I'm trying to, to just even to reach it, let alone exceed it. <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. I suppose there's a, bit, there's a big risk in this to Rishi Sunak, isn't there? That, that as and when the, the taps are turned off a bit and some tough decisions are made later in the year, people might suddenly... People, the amazing thing is people who know who he is, probably in a way that they perhaps didn't know when Philip Hammond was the Chancellor. Very high profile, very high expectations of him you know, being nice and dishing the money out. And so there could be quite a kickback when he has to start making some more difficult decisions. Absolutely. But you should also look at it this way. Why are his ratings so positive and the labor leaders so negative? And and for the conservatives, they should see that someone who works hard, plays by the rules, very detail oriented, very sophisticated, 
that there is room in the Conservative Party for a prime minister and a chancellor that are very different people with different backgrounds, a different focus, different skills, and both of them um, can survive in that same political party. I want to point out something you said just seconds ago, which is, are you looking inside or outside? The conservatives with their leveling up and their build back better are clearly looking outside, are looking to voters who may not have voted for them in the past, but are saying, hey, give us a chance. We're not the same conservatives that you remember from 40 years ago, whereas labor is spending way too much time looking internally, trying to trying to show themselves as being pure rather than, once again, those Blair years where they offered a big tent for a lot of people. Um, the big tent works. The, the appeal to uh, a, the greater UK is much more popular than trying to be pure intellectually or ideologically. He's absolutely fascinating. And yeah, you'd hope that uh, the Labour Party might be listening. Now, uh, up next, we're going to look at some of the uh, the big issues which are dominating right now. Extended the lockdown, taking the knee, uh, racism in the UK. We're uh, picking our way through the latest Times Radio focus group conducted with the help of Kex CNC. Uh, US pollster Frank Luntz was in the chair for us uh, with the panel. Um, Frank, just uh, partly as a reminder and also a response to one of the questions we've had in, someone saying, uh, Jill in Cambridge, uh, saying, where do you get these focus group people from? There's not a reasonably educated person among them. Uh, so, Frank, where do you find uh, focus group uh, people? And, I mean, there's a bit of a slight, I think, on our panel, who uh, actually I thought made some quite smart points. But how does it actually work when you're recruiting for a focus group? Yes, and I will note that the uh, caller who's from Cambridge, the last time that Cambridge offered a prime minister of the United Kingdom is never compared to Oxford. <laughs> Says Oxford graduate Frank Lutz. <laughs> yes. And, and honestly, I'm, I, that always bothers me that I believe that the people who have genuine common sense and, and who, who live uh, a ordinary everyday life know a lot more than people who give them credit for. And, and that kind of comment, that's the kind of comment that I would expect from an American. And that's an insult, by the way, uh, <laughs> speaking as an American. Uh, I thought those people were well-informed on, on, on uh, different things. Um, they may not be able to split an atom, but they absolutely understood where things were and were able to articulate it better than I am right now. And I just found the entire session really, it gave me confidence that there is a way to find common ground, that there is a way to disagree, and there's a way to be passionate about it without being mean about it. So they're chosen at random from all across the country. Uh, whenever I do this, I always know that there'll be a couple of people I don't understand. We may be speaking <laughs> the same language, but we're divided by that language. I always sweat it out, but uh, all eight of those people I really enjoyed and their backgrounds were so diverse. And that's what you're looking for in a focus group. Diverse backgrounds with some sort of commonality that you can understand the group I thought they were very reflective of Britain as a whole, of swing voters in Britain as a whole. And in fact, let's move on and we'll hear some more clips now. Um, you were talking to them about uh, lockdown and the prospect of extending lockdown. We actually did the, the focus group at the end of last week, but um, it was already on the cards that Boris Johnson was looking at extending lockdown. Uh, 
Uh, but let's take, uh, you know, we hear all this outrage from Tory MPs and some newspapers uh, at the prospect of extending lockdown. The truth is the public, if you look at opinion polls, the public are more than happy to go along with it. And this is what the focus group had to say. Yeah. It's based on data and we've got real values that, that the death rate and the hospital admissions, if they're going up, I fully back it because it's the right thing to do, because it'll give a bit more time to get a few more vaccinations in. I'm lucky I've had both my vaccinations and I've had COVID, you know, so I'm hoping I'm, you know, I'm on the safer side of it. But, you know, talking through work, I still do lateral flows two or three times a week because it's the right thing to do. I think there's a lot of people out there. I live in Bolton, for example. You know, it's the worst place in the world. It has been all the way through for, uh, for COVID uh, cases. Um, do I still see people out and about doing what they shouldn't be? 100% and it frustrates me because I'm trying to do everything I can to keep me and my family safe and, you know, my colleagues and my work friends and everything like that. And it just frustrates me that we're not. So if they have to put another lockdown in, I'd back it 100% if it's based on data. So we are, that's uh, mute, music to Boris Johnson's ears this morning, Frank Lentz. Uh, I, I, in the appearance I made on Question Time, there were more people who wanted to delay opening up than wanted to keep it closed. And that's, and you're very early in this radio program, you mentioned that someone had texted you that they knew nobody who wanted to keep the place locked up. Well, that's simply, that tells, if, if you truly know nobody, then this is a wake-up call that you don't know the country, that the people who you communicate with, you talk to, really don't represent the UK. Uh, and similarly, if everyone you know uh, wants to keep the place locked down, then you don't have a representative sample of friends and acquaintances and co-workers and, and neighbors. Britain is very split on this issue. You have a significant percent of people on both sides. And what you just heard was, was well articulated about someone who sees the numbers and that's what's key. Is it based on the data? Or is it based on politics? If it's based on data, they will support it. One more thing, and I apologize because I know these answers are long, but I'm trying to set context for all of this. This is the one issue that should never, ever be politicized. And I said this to both uh, conservative and labor MPs on question time. You need people to trust the science. You need people to trust medical professionals. You need people to trust the government on this one issue because lives are at stake. So in this case, don't play politics. Don't try to score points. Don't take credit. Simply state it as it is. Be factual. Explain it. Articulate it. Uh, and help people come to the right conclusions. In the end, it's the public's right to make those decisions. But help them come to the right decisions. And please, if you politicize it, you'll end up like America, where the Biden people are all getting vaccinated and the Trump people aren't. And so now our, our safety, our security as a country has now been politicized. And that is the worst thing you could ever do. Please, UK, don't do it. <laughs> On the subject of uh, being politicised and uh, polarised in, in politics, there's been a lot of debate about taking the knee because uh, England football was doing that in, in the match uh, yesterday. You'd think that everyone in the UK has a very strong view on this uh, topic, but actually it was much more nuanced than that. Let's take a listen to, uh, to what the group had to say. I do fully support it, but I mean, when does it end? I mean, it's now losing its significance. It was very strong and very powerful at the start. But now people are just starting to 
to, to resent it, and it's going to cause more resentment. It's, for, me, it's, for me, it's misaligned. It's not Black Lives Matter, it's All Lives Matter. And yeah. if it's took a knee because All Lives Matter, I back it and I'd applaud it every time. I agree that it's lost its significance in the normal league, but if it's the start of the Euros, then, then I feel it should happen. But not at the start of every game. Well, that's a good point, the Euros is a big focal point, so perhaps, you know, that might be more poignant, because if they do it now, it's not, it's like, oh, they're just doing the same old thing, whereas if they hadn't done it for a while, then they did it again. Everyone's entitled to their beliefs, and if they want to take the knee, then they should be allowed to. Like you said, Frank, a nice, polite, nuanced conversation, which you wouldn't necessarily expect from uh, on a topic like taking the knee, which we are led to believe the entire country is up in arms about one way or the other. Well, I, I'm looking for. I'm going to the game on Friday, and I'm ah, see, are you? That's why you're here. <laughs> I'm going to see England and Scotland, and frankly, I want both sides to win. I I know that's like you cannot ever support that, but you know what? I'm a unionist, and I admit it. And I want this country to hang together. Uh, I love, I love it here. I, uh, I don't have my shoes to show you because we're on radio, but I've got Union Jack shoes that I wear proudly two or three times a week. Uh, the players, what, what your audience, what your focus group said is that players have the right to do what they think is best, and fans have the right to articulate their point of view. That there is this desire, despite the extremists on both sides. There is a desire to give voice to people, to let them know that they're being heard, they're being recognized and being respected. And that is the goal of all of this. And I actually don't think it's as controversial as the media wants to make it out to be. And once again, I think the politicians politicians do a disservice by uh, trying to politicize something that is done in with all of the best intentions by reasonable people. Frank, it's been so good to hear from you. We've had so many messages this morning and questions about uh, the Labour Party, about Donald Trump, about the Conservative Party, Keir Starmer, Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak. I don't really know where to uh, where to start, really. One thing, um, in fact, this has come up quite um, uh, a fair amount, is you've sort of slightly touched on it too, is how do you think people can be better informed about politics? A balanced view rather than Westminster bubble focus. That's coming from Helen. What do you think the state of, just to sort of finish where we started, really, the state of political discourse uh, in the uh, in the UK right now. How, let me ask you, how much time do we have in this interview? We'll have a couple more minutes, probably. Otherwise, Mariana Foster's going to tell me. I'll tell you what. What we'll do, we'll do, fam. We'll get you back on because we've had so many questions. We can get. We'll get you back on in a week or so. We'll we'll have a proper session. We'll forget the focus group and we'll just have people asking you questions. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to give very quick answers. So let's go through a lot of questions <laughs> as we can. First, you have to read multiple newspapers. You cannot get your news just from Sky or or uh, or the BBC. You cannot just get it from the Guardian or the Telegraph. You have to read or the Times. You have to read multiple newspapers. I know that you guys don't want to hear that because this is a Times radio program. But if you're going to be informed, you've got to choose two media sources. Number one and number two, don't trust the web unless it's from an actual media source that has levels of accountability. All it is is opinion. So much of it is not factual. And it bothers me that people form their points of view. So BBC and Sky, uh, The Times and The Guardian. Do some sort of pairing up so you get multiple perspectives. That'll give you the actual accurate news. 
That is uh, top advice from uh, uh, Franklin. I'll tell you what, one final one. Somebody's texting and saying, I know it's tripe, but Keir Starmer needs a decent haircut. Lose the 1950s greasy look. A lot of the, you know, people focus on appearance. Someone else texts in and saying he's got, he wears too many clothes which are grey and that sort of thing. Appearance does matter, doesn't it? But people might think it's, um, you know, uh, trivial. But this sort of stuff does matter. Yes, and I don't want to play into it. I'm about to confirm what's been said, but it really bothers me because British politics is much more substantial. You are much more focused on policy. You know more facts. You are you are better, you're more articulated than the American audience, so good for you. What you just said is accurate. We do care about appearance, particularly in Britain, particularly that sense of style or lack of but don't do it. Don't play into it. <laughs> don't lose your advantage over America when it comes to substance. Please don't start focusing on style. Come on, give me one more question. Let me do a quick answer. Oh, right, one more question. Um, how do Americans feel about Trump running again in 2024? I don't think it'll happen, but I don't know how big his hold is on the on the Republican Party. That's if you for voted for Donald Trump, if you voted for Trump, you're voting for him. Donald Trump will get 40% of the Republican vote. And that will give him the nomination if he runs. He can never, ever be elected again because independents don't like him and Democrats hate him. The only people he, who he will appeal to are those who voted from the past. And that is a shrinking, shrinking group of people. Yes, he will win the nomination if he runs. No, he will not be reelected. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from?